Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. So, throughout human history, humans, the majority of humans, have believed in the soul and in the spiritual world. Even today, in our scientific age, we generally, humans generally, believe that the world isn't just made up of matter, the stuff that you can see and touch and test in a lab. Most religions, and even most people who would describe themselves as non-religious, have believed that we have a soul and that the world is, at least in some sense, spiritual. I don't think this reality is going to change anytime soon. However, something uh, has changed in the last 150 years or so. You can date it as you like. Um, But the, the change has happened, and it's only accelerated over time. And the change is this, that in the last 150 years especially of human history, we've been able to steady the world around us. Humans have always been curious to figure stuff out. Uh, But we've been able to steady the world around us and find out all kinds of interesting and new things. We've uh, built on our knowledge and on our accomplishments, and we've been able to do some incredible things, things that previous generations never would have thought possible. The list of accomplishments really is quite astonishing, and it includes everything from medical breakthroughs to particle physics to astronomy to all the cool electronic gadgets that we carry around. Now, all these accomplishments are really great, but they've gone to our heads, right? We're pretty proud of what we're able to do, and our success in the natural sciences has led many people in our culture today to deny the basic reality of the soul and of the spiritual world around us that we cannot study scientifically. Now, it would be one thing if this group of people that deny this basic reality were perhaps a a bunch of crackpot philosophers off in a corner somewhere wringing their hands, but that's not the case, right? There are at least two groups of people who deny the reality of the spiritual world and of the soul, and they have a lot of weight and authority in our culture today. The first group is scientists. Uh, Many scientists, not all of them, of course, but many scientists uh, study the world around them, try to explain it, And they regularly give us gifts that make them appear godlike, right? You need a cure for a disease? Well, we'll go off and study it in a lab somewhere, and and then here you go. Here's a cure or a, a treatment. Do you need to increase your crop yield by so much to help feed people on this planet? Well, we'll study that and and figure out ways to grow more food, and so here you go. You want a skyscraper that's thousands of feet up? Engineers will huddle together and and figure out how to do it, and they'll build it. So scientists regularly give us gifts, and they explain the world to us, and so it's natural that we give them a lot of authority in our culture. But again, scientists have grown very cocky with their successes, and so they've lost sight of the limitation of their craft. The fact that scientists can figure out a cure for a deadly epidemic doesn't actually tell them whether they should use it. 
right? Why is it better to heal people than it is to let them die? That may sound self-evident to many of us, but it's really not an obvious question. Why is it better to be alive than to be dead is not actually a question that science can answer. There is no amount of testing or steadying the world under a microscope that can answer that question. That question must be answered by religion. And yet many scientists uh, today study the physical world and they study it, maybe they study it so much that they've stopped believing in anything else. Um, Even in the the issue, uh, you'll get pagan scientists to admit to you that this idea of consciousness, the fact that we humans, which are, we're, we're made of matter, of this stuff, somehow we're aware of ourselves, right? This issue, this idea of consciousness, this self-awareness that we have, is still an enormous mystery to scientists. Um, and yet, we're now able to, to build... Um, we're able to study the brain, we're able to study uh, computers, build very, very sophisticated computers that scientists, in the very same way that um, they posit that life could, could be, come out of non-life, scientists today that uh, posit that consciousness, self-awareness, can, can just come ha- somehow uh, emerge from non-consciousness, right? They're, they're, they're quite cocky. The other group of people that I would argue uh, often deny this basic reality of the spiritual world and of the soul are what I refer to as technologists. These are people uh, who also seem to have godlike powers since they give us iPhones and Google search where you can search for anything you'd like, uh, virtual reality goggles and self-driving cars and Facebook, right? Uh, Thank you very much. Um, I think Facebook is a devolution as opposed to an evolution. Um, Anyway, most of us don't understand the first thing about the technology behind the gadgets that we use every day, but we still care very deeply about what the men who gave them to us think and say. So guys like Steve Jobs, who's passed away, but now the hot item is Elon Musk, right? He's the guy behind Tesla, and he wants to take people to Mars and uh, whatever. So people care what he thinks and what he says. People have cared for a long time what Bill Gates thinks and says and so forth. Many of these people uh, do not, they, many of these people actually deny the existence of the soul and of the, of the reality of the spiritual world. And additionally to that, many technologists especially care very much about the future, Right? They talk about the future all the time. They make bold predictions about what the future will, will, will entail, what it will be like. They know where we're headed. They're supposed to be the trendsetters. And if you don't get, like what they say, you don't get on the bandwagon of what they want to do, the changes they want to make, you're seen as old-fashioned and behind the times. And worse than even that, anyone who doesn't get on the bandwagon is obstructing progress. And anyone who obstructs progress is downright evil. If you obstruct progress, then you're thick-headed and stupid and you really should just be quiet. And as I mentioned a minute ago, 
we're now developing uh, computers that are very, very sophisticated. And, and so they're making these bold predictions about in the next 20 years or so, 20, 25 years, they're saying that we're going to be able to make a computer that's just as intelligent as a human being. You know, it's no big deal to have computers beat uh, humans in chess. They do that to you all the time, right? Um, and to me. <clears throat> But even the best chess players, they, they, they regularly beat them. And, they, and so we figured out ways to uh, have computers beat us in lots of things. And pretty soon they're saying that we're going to have computers that are even smarter than humans at general things. And so then, what then is the difference between a human and a computer? You know, these are the questions that they think about and they argue about. So my aim today is twofold. First, I want to examine what the scripture teaches about the soul and about the spiritual world. And then next, I want to dig into our passage for today from Matthew 10 to understand what the Bible teaches us about how we are to think about our soul and care for it. It's very common for us to think about our bodies, what we need to eat and the exercise we need to have, but it's very easy to overlook the care of our souls, and and each of us need to be concerned to care for our soul. So what does the Bible teach about the soul? Uh, There are two Hebrew terms in the Old Testament that are significant on this topic, and they are nefesh and ruach. Now, the term nefesh occurs, the Hebrew term nefesh occurs nearly 800 times in the Old Testament, and it's primarily used of humans, but it's occasionally used of animals and of God himself. It it has a few different nuances, but it generally refers to the soul of man that departs upon death and returns with life at the resurrection. So um, the Bible teaches that our bodies and souls go together, right? We are you can, there's a distinction between our bodies and souls, but we're one person, right? <clears throat> and that there's this temporary time where when somebody dies, they will, their soul will depart from their body. But then when, when God resurrects us, when we're raised from the dead, our bodies and souls will be back together. So the separation of body and soul is only a temporary thing. The normal is for body and soul to be together. But... <clears throat> Uh, so here, uh, just a few verses from the Old Testament to, uh, with where this term nefesh is used. For instance, in Leviticus 7, it says, for the life of flesh, the nefesh of the flesh is in the blood, right? <clears throat> Psalm 30, for instance, says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, soul, nefesh, you have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Proverbs 21 says, the soul of the wicked desires evil, indicating that this term nefesh also can refer to your will, your volitions, your desires. Deuteronomy 6 is familiar to us. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah, you'll remember, there's this story where he raises a boy, a small, a child, from the dead, and he he stretches himself out over the boy, and he says, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. His body was still there, 
but something, his life, had departed, and, and, and Elijah prays that it would return to his body, and it did. <clears throat> the second important ter- Hebrew term from the Old Testament is ruach, and this term appears over 350 times, and it's most frequently translated as spirit. It can refer to the spirit of God, of angels, of man. It can refer to the wind and a few other things. But it's overwhelmingly the term of choice for God. Uh, in, In Job 34, for instance, it says, if he should determine to do so, if he, God, should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. Jeremiah 10 uh, uh, speaks about how idols are deceitful because there is no breath, no ruach in them. They can't move. They possess no consciousness. They are a lie. Now, in both the Old and New Testaments, the Bible teaches that there, as I mentioned, uh, there is this intermediate state between death and the final resurrection while we are temporarily disembodied. That is to say, there's a period of time when our bodies and souls aren't together. Um, And this term, uh, in the Old Testament, you'll see the term sheol appear, and it can mean a a variety of things, but in general it means that it refers to the place where you go when you die. You don't cease to exist, even in the Old Testament it's clear that you don't cease to exist, um, but that you continue to exist in some sense. So for instance, uh, there's the example of King Saul who used, uh, procured the services of a witch to actually summon someone from the dead and speak to that person again even after they had died. That actually did happen. In Psalm 49, uh, it says, as sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning and their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Again, even in the Old Testament, there is this hope of the resurrection beyond the grave. So in Job 19, for instance, it says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Now when we turn to the New Testament, there are of course many, many references to life after death, including our passage for today, and Jesus teaches about it all the time. But remember, there was an actual open debate about whether or not we we have a soul, and whether or not there's actually a spirit world. And there are two camps in, in, in the Jewish world at the time, and one group denied the existence of the soul and of the spirit world. Now, do any of you know who, which group that was? The Sadducees, right? They were the upper crust of the uh, Jewish society at the time, and they denied the existence of the soul. And it's interesting, uh, Pharisees, the term Pharisee is still today a nasty thing. You don't want to be called a Pharisee. Those are the ones that are in the New Testament regularly fighting with Jesus, but Jesus actually sides with the Pharisees in this particular question. The Pharisees were the ones that believed in the resurrection of the dead. And you'll remember in Acts 23 that the Apostle Paul, when he's on trial uh, before the Romans, he does something kind of sneaky. I always find it hilarious when I read it. 
uh, he is standing on trial and he, he shouts out loud, I am standing on trial for the hope of the resurrection. And immediately the Sadducees and the Pharisees start arguing together about this topic. Paul knew that they were going to do that and so he kind of planted the seed for them. But clearly, uh, Jesus sided with the Pharisees as did Paul. So many examples of teachings of life after death and of the soul. Now, um, you can obviously read a lot of books, arguments, uh, philosophical arguments and uh, apologetic arguments for and against the existence of the soul, just as you can read arguments for and against the uh, existence of God. Um, My point today isn't to jump into that. My, I will say, my understanding of the, existence, the arguments against the existence of the soul is really, they pretty much boil down to um, the fact that you can't see it or touch it or, te- or test it in a lab. Uh, and as I say, because of our successes with science, we've gotten very cocky in thinking that the only things that exist are the things that you can see in a lab. So if that's something you're interested in, there's plenty out there. Um, If you want recommendations, I'd be happy to give you some, but um, that's all I'll say about that today. What I really want to focus on then is if you see, if you agree with me that the Bible teaches that we have a soul, then I want to then ask the question, how then are we to care for this soul that God has given to us? How are we to do that? Well, this is where things get a little difficult. We get a little tricky because there are many religions and worldviews that teach that there is something inside of us that we must care for, right? And what the, their term that they use for whatever that thing is that's inside of us that we need to care for varies a little bit. But, you know, all the way back to ancient Greek philosophers, they talked a lot about the soul and the proper care of the soul. And all the way to today... You know, you walk in, this past week I, uh, I, I went to Barnes Noble to work on this sermon a little bit, and there are these tables up front in the front of the store that are supposed to catch your eye. One of them did, caught, caught my eye, and uh, because of the, the topic I was teaching on, or preaching on today, it was, it was some yoga book promising peace and fulfillment or something like that, and so I, it caught my eye and I looked at it, and at the, the very first pages, it said the following, for years, my life was fine, but not amazing. I realized that I was carrying around bucket loads of tension. I seemed to never get what I wanted. What was I doing wrong, right? So this is literally just some book I, I came across at Barnes & Noble as I walked in there. And so even those who deny uh, e- even those who deny that the soul exists, I don't know, in this particular case, this person probably did believe that, this, that there is such a thing as a soul, but even those who deny that a soul exists uh, and, and say that the only thing that is there is the physical uh, generally believe in, in this concept of self-improvement, right? And self-improvement is rarely just about working out or eating right. It's, they, they always address something deeper within ourselves, in fact, another example of this is all the advertisements we see all over the place, right? Uh, all of our advertising promises peace and happiness and joy. If you would just buy the right soap or the right beer, you could be happy, right? <clears throat> so these promises are all around us, um, 
But when we're able to pull ourselves away from our television and stop and think a little bit more carefully for a moment, we can all recognize in some sense that these advertisements are really just tricking us, right? Bacon is delicious, but it's not going to make you more happy forever. And the car, that new car might be cool, but uh, even pagans can recognize that buying a car isn't going to make you a better human being. Other things that promise fulfillment, uh, such as drugs or sex or food or a nice house or whatever, um, can satisfy you for a time, but they are all temporary and they don't necessarily improve you. And indeed, even a pagan can recognize that at some point, you're going to die. And that is a bit of a showstopper, right? They're, They're able to see, we're all able to see that in the face of eternity, in the face of death, these things that are temporary cannot satisfy us ultimately. But see, things are still confusing because if you've waited past the garbage that's obviously not gonna help you, the stuff that is in pop psychology books, um, you'll notice that many teachings from different religions and philosophies can look very, very similar. Take the Dalai Lama, for instance. The Dalai Lama is a Buddhist monk, and he's referred to as the spiritual leader of Tibet. I believe he still has family here in Bloomington. So I don't know if he comes here very often. Does the Dalai Lama come here often at all? Or three, really? Okay. So apparently he's, he's here fairly regularly. Um, <clears throat> well, if you look at the books that he's written and the stuff that he talks about, the list would actually look very similar to the kinds of things that we talk about here, right? What would, it, what, what would be a, a seminar that he might give? What would be the topic of a seminar that he might give? It could include something like thankfulness or maybe hope or love, inner peace, sure, peace, kindness, learning how to be kind, overcoming anger, uh, forgiveness, forgiving others. It might be something on humility, living with a sense of wonder and awe at the world around us, right? These are all topics that we would talk about. In fact, the Dalai Lama uh, wrote a book titled The Good Heart, a Buddhist Perspective on the Teachings of Jesus, right? So he's clearly read a lot about Jesus and has thoughts about him. And so when we see the teachings, the similarities between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Dalai Lama, there's a tendency in our pluralistic and relativistic age to be lazy and just lump them all together. It's easy to wave our hands and just say they must all be saying the same things. They're all generally basically the same and we can all, you know, you're getting to the same place just by different paths. Of course, it's very easy um, in some sense to say that. You're not gonna make very many enemies that way. Even the scientists who I spoke about earlier who will look down on you for believing in the spirit world um, and perhaps even look down on the Dalai Lama, think very highly of the Dalai Lama for saying that all roads lead to Rome, as it were, right? Um, so you're not gonna make very many enemies that way. But what did Jesus actually teach about the soul? What did he teach us about how to care for our souls? Is it any different than what the Dalai Lama teaches? And my answer, of course, is yes, it's very different. 
And here's where, if you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to jump into uh, Matthew 10, beginning with verse 26. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So my first point that I want to bring out about what Jesus teaches about the soul is that we care for our souls primarily and initially by doing business with God. You cannot begin to care for your soul without first doing business with God. We were created, we were made to have a relationship with God, and that means we are relational creatures by default. It's certainly beneficial to wake up in the morning and to spend time by yourself reading your Bible or to go on a retreat or whatever. Those things are good, but you cannot grow spiritually. You cannot care for your soul by simply becoming a monk and staying out in the wilderness by yourself forever. John Calvin said that wisdom is knowing God and knowing yourself, and it's something I like to repeat. It's very true. To begin to care for your soul, you must come to God and relate to him. But of course, the first thing that we run up against when we come before God is the awesome Holiness is, is, is God's holiness, right? Jesus taught that we have sinned against the holy God and for that evil, we justly deserve to be placed in hell for eternity. This is the meaning behind Jesus' warning that uh, to fear him who can put both body and soul into hell. Elsewhere, Jesus describes hell as a place where fire never goes out and where there will always be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Now the world is filled with people who will shake their heads and scoff at the idea of a God who is wrathful towards sin and who judges people by sending them to hell for eternity. They'll say, what a petty, vengeful God you serve. Or worse, they'll say that such a God is monstrous and evil. But of course, it's very foolish to object in this way, and it really just amounts to explaining away and excusing our awful wickedness. It amounts to saying that we're not really that bad and that we should just get over it. But the perfect holiness and the perfect goodness of God are truths that should give us hope and joy. Finally, there is one who is righteous and true altogether. Finally, we have hope that our terrible evil in this world will be finally dealt with forever by a God who is pure and holy. The scoffers, those who mock this God, overlook his kindness and patience, who has given us his son, Jesus Christ, as our mediator. Again, from Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free 
gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is precisely uh, what I want to hit on my next point. This is precisely where Jesus goes because it's, it's really amazing. He warns us here in verse 28 of the destruction of both the body and the soul in hell. And then he immediately says, He says to fear the one who can put both body and soul into hell and then he immediately goes and gives the example of the sparrows and that God cares even for the sparrow. How much more does he care for us? He says even the very hairs of your head are numbered so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The world will deny it but the scripture teaches that in the godly fear and love embrace The Bible regularly tells us that there is no conflict, there is no uh, uh, fight between the fear of God and the love of God. We are to, to fly for comfort to the very one that we are also to fear, right? In our, in our culture today, any talk of fear or any talk of real authority uh, lets people, people think that maybe you're part of a dictatorship or part of a cult or something, but... Um, But notice what Jesus says. He says, do not fear man, but instead fear God. And these things are not incompatible. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? God's judgments surely are terrifying, no doubt about that, but he commands us to come to him for comfort and for security. The very God who will one day judge the earth is the one who invites us to find our comfort and our soul, and our comfort and our joy in him. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. There is no incompatibility between the fear of God and the love of God. And so brothers and sisters, one of the main ways that we care for our soul is by both fearing God and loving God. The band occasionally will do two songs together and you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And Jody, I don't even remember the names of the songs. You know what I'm talking about? The... uh, Yeah, exactly. They do Hiding Place, which is a song about God's justice and judgment, and it's loud and obnoxiously loud, right, and terrifying. And then immediately after that, they do Rock Rock of Ages, yeah. Uh, Hide me. Let me hide myself in thee. Thank you. Thank you very much. What a, what a wonderful picture of the fear and love of God. The very one who will judge the earth is the one to whom we are to run. Now, I talked about advertisements earlier. I'm going to do a little advertisement here. This is a book that was just released by Warhorn Media, Warhorn Press. I believe the people we have to thank for putting this little project together are Alex McNeely and Josh Congrove primarily, although I'm sure a few other people were involved. But this is a book called Peace and Holiness by Horatius Bonner. He's a guy that uh, was from Scotland and he's been dead for a long time. So, you know, chances are this is a decent book, right? It's worth reading. Um, And so it's a a very good book. And obviously the title Peace and Holiness, this is something that we want in our souls. And so very good book, very good to help you care for your soul. Um, you can you can buy it from 
You can ask Alex where to get it. I think it's on Amazon, um, but you can buy it in the office also. Very, very helpful book. <clears throat> Which leads me to my next point. Um, it's possible to care for our soul. In fact, we're commanded to do so. Reading the Bible, obviously, praying, uh, reading a book like Peace and Holiness. Or these are all ways to care for our soul. But if we know that if it's possible to care for our soul, we also know that it's possible to be careless and foolish about our souls. And this is, unfortunately, kind of our default position, right? We're very careless. We tend to be very careless about our soul. And so I want to spend the last few minutes I have today uh, talking about what we should watch out for. We cause harm to our souls when we consume garbage, and there is a lot of garbage out there. Whenever we consume the sex and the violence and the perversity that's spewed constantly on our televisions or in magazines or books or articles online, uh, we do so saying that they will have no impact on our soul. We trick ourselves. We, we tell ourselves that these things won't make a big difference. You know, I can read this or watch this movie or whatever, and it won't have an impact on our soul. But what makes you so sure of that? Why do you think that you're the first human that can take fire into your lap without getting burned? You cannot. You cannot consume the very things that God hates and expect to have a healthy soul. No, these things, brothers and sisters, will destroy our souls. Garbage in, garbage out. We convince ourselves that it's no big deal, but you will reap what you sow. If you sow sexual perversity and violence and anger and hatred, you're not going to reap holiness and peace and joy. Remember what the apostle tells us to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Just like you can't cheat death, right? No one is going to cheat death no matter what the uh, Mark Zuckerberg or these other guys tell you. No one's going to cheat death. You cannot cheat this principle of reaping and sowing. You will reap what you sow. And so I want to mention one other thing in particular that's especially soul-destroying, and that's pornography. Now, Remember how I said that we begin our care for our souls by doing business with God, right? Our God is a personal God, and that means that we have relationship with him. In fact, we must have relationship with him in order to properly care for our souls. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a trinity, and he has relationship within himself. And so the point is, relationship isn't some sideshow, right? It's not some addendum. We don't have relationship as like a part of uh, our care for our soul. It's very central. It's a very central thing. We relate to God, but then we also relate to our neighbor, you know, the people around us, our wife, our husband. Jesus said the greatest commandments were to love God and to love your neighbor. And so pornography is an evil attempt to selfishly get what we want without any care or concern for anyone else. We've, we are created to have deep, meaningful relationships, relationships that are, uh, that are good, um, but because of sin, relationships are very hard, and pornography tells you that you can have relationships that are fulfilling and satisfying in a way that's cheap and easy. We tell ourselves that we don't need to be satisfied in our relationship with God or in our relationships with our, our wife, but instead with the image that we see on the screen. 
But these images aren't real and they're a lie and they're very destructive. And this is also why romance novels are so destructive also. They promise intimacy and relationship without the hard work and the sin and the forgiveness that's necessary, the give and take that's necessary in normal relationships. They're a lie and they will destroy your soul. God made us to have intimate real relationships and the mark of a healthy soul is that it has healthy loving relationships this is also why Facebook is such a lie right it gives us this positive feedback loop where we put up something and all these people say like and love and everything and we feel like we're relating to somebody else but it's and there's a just a very tiny distant way in which yes maybe you're relating to other people but it's so small and insignificant it's it's mostly a lie because most of the time the people that you're relating to on Facebook are not the real people but the way that the, these people want you to think about them right we all know that we pretty ourselves up for Facebook and make ourselves look better than we actually are and so brothers and sisters we are made to have real relationships not fake ones Okay. Now finally, as we end today, I want, us to, I want us to remind us as we consider how to properly care for our souls, I want us to remind us to use accurate weights and measures. Paul says this about our souls, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This life is temporary. The afflictions that we face today are temporary. All the pleasure and pain, the joy and the sorrow of this life will be gone in an instant. How long are you going to wait to begin caring and tending for your own soul. How long will you wait before you'll care for this soul that God gave you, this soul that will never die? How long will you wait to care for the soul that will spend an eternity either in hell or in heaven? Ecclesiastes 7 says that it is better to go into a house of mourning than to go into a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Will you take it to heart? Will you consider the end of your days? Brothers and sisters, let's take these warnings to heart while there is still time. Let's pray.